1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand deer hunting podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 44, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today, John and I are talking the big woods of the Northeast in the quest for the main 200-pound patch with Neil Pendleton. So stay tuned. All right. Happy New Year, everybody. That was terrible. It's like my mouth didn't want to work this morning. Uh, but Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everyone's enjoying the cold weather that we have here uh, across most of the Northeast and the Midwest. Speaking of enjoyment, one thing that you can enjoy, that it, whether it's cold or hot, is a free Exodus Lift 2 trail camera. And all you have to do is head over to the thetruthfromthestand.com, go to the About page, and sign up for our newsletter, and you will be entered into the drawing to win a free Exodus, 2, or Exodus Lift 2 camera so don't delay go ahead and do that as soon as we hit the 200 mark for folks who have registered uh, we will go ahead and do the drawing get the camera out to the lucky winner we'll announce it on facebook and we'll get a hold of you and get your shipping address and your information and get that into your hands uh, super excited here for the 2018 year we have some new partners coming on so i'm really looking forward to being able to do some giveaways uh, from some new partners so some some of the new folks we're going to be working with in 2018 is wicked tree gear uh, which you heard probably in the intro. And then also Glacier Coolers are two of the new folks who have come on board. And we've got some stuff in the works here for, um, you know, as we move further into 2018 that uh, I can't quite announce yet, but we will here in the coming episodes announce a few other folks who have joined the, uh, Join the team here, so to speak. Uh, With that, we are brought to you by, this podcast is brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest-lasting, fastest-cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saw on earth. Right now, when you visit WickedTreeGear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. Uh, This podcast is also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. Life's a passion, pursue it. You've heard me talk about these guys forever. They have a kick-ass camera, and now they're launching the new Exodus Trek and this is coming in at under a $150 price point, so a little less expensive than their original Lift and Lift 2. Uh, visit excessoutdoorgear.com to pre-order uh, this new camera today and use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save $20. We're also brought to you by Whitetail Institute of North America. Research equals results. It's that time of year, folks. Start planning for next year's plots. Visit WhitetailInstitute.com and pick up your soil test kit to begin planning for next year's food plot success and also glacier coolers simply the world's finest whether you're hunting camping or fishing you'll enjoy smarter designs stronger construction and superior insulation of glacier coolers visit them at glaciercoolers.com so as you heard there's a couple new folks uh, in the mix here we're going to try to do some giveaways here in the not so distant future with some of those and get those products into your hands really looking forward to the 2018 year uh And kind of closing the chapter here, you know. I did a hunt this past weekend. I had a little bit of time off over the holiday and uh, got out in some of the frigid temperatures. Uh, Saw a couple deer, uh, nothing within shooting range, uh, but all in all, the year's been successful. You know, we'll do a recap of our 2017 season here at some point. But um, just feel really fortunate to be able to have been out in the woods as much as I have been this year. You know, with the trip to Montana and the trip to Ohio and um you know getting out uh here around my around my home on some public land and harvesting a, a great pennsylvania eight point this year with my bow um you couldn't be more pleased with the season that i had i actually recently got my ohio buck back from last year um the, the mount finish so super excited to hang that in the uh in, in the house i'm just trying to uh, wrangle some wall space from my wife in the living room fingers crossed we'll see if that happens uh, but looking forward to what 2018 has to bring, and first up we have uh, Neil Pendleton uh, today that John and I are talking to, and Neil comes from the Northeast, and we're talking big woods hunting. Um, what's interesting about Neil is he and I kind of struck up a relationship over social media uh, in advance of this conversation, probably you know roughly a year year and a half ago, and uh, you know he predominantly hunts the Northeast, but he does take some trips uh, you know in, into the Midwest, specifically Ohio, and does some hunting. So it was really interesting to get his perspective on hunting the big woods. Uh, in the Northeast, you know, New Hampshire and Maine, and then also, you know, kind of, uh, positioning that against his experiences in the Midwest, Ohio specifically, you know, what kind of struck me as interesting was when we were talking, he was talking about the hundred pound or the 200 pound patch. Um, and I'll let him kind of explain it as we get into, into the podcast, but it was just a, just a different way of looking at the maturity of a deer and creating a target buck or a target deer list, if you will. Um, so it was much different than what I had heard in a, uh, previously. I'd never heard that term, the 200-pound patch before. Um, and so we kind of dive into that with Neo, and he explains that and kind of goes to the hunt. Um, it's been a quest for him for quite some time to hit that hit that mark in, I believe, the state of Maine. Um, I believe he's uh, managed to get his 200-pound patch for New Hampshire, but it's been a quest of his for a long time to do that in Maine. So really excited to share that story with you. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get cracking and get Neil on the line. All right, we are live. And today, John and I are joined here on episode number 44 with uh, Neil Pendleton. Neil is coming to us from the uh, the, the New England area. Funny story is, is that Neil and I actually connected very early on when I had initially started the uh, the podcast he uh, I was talking about some public land that I was hunting in Ohio it just so happened that he and I were hunting in uh in, in close proximity to one another in the uh, in the Buckeye state and uh, he was fearful that I might let the cat out of the bag of some of the good hunting that we were having out there but i but I did try to keep a tight lip on it and hopefully he had some good hunts out there this year and I'm sure we'll dive into that but uh Neil how you doing brother thanks for coming on
3: I'm doing great, so thanks for having me, Clint.
2: Yeah, you bet, man. I know, you know, we're catching up just a little bit here before we started recording, and there's, you know, an interesting perspective of, uh, you know, I think the deer hunters in the the New England areas—I'll just kind of classify the region because I know you hunt a couple of different states up in that area. Um, you know, I know when we talk about big deer in most other areas, you know, especially when you got in the Midwest, they're talking about inches and stuff like that. And I know you shot out a Facebook post here a couple of weeks ago that caught my eye, where you're talking about your your big buck patch or your 200 pound patch. And we'll get into into that, but that's really what we're going to kind of talk about today, folks. Is you know a little bit of a, I guess not a geography lesson, but kind of talking about how you know the differences. Uh, in terms of of hunting depending on where you know geographically where you're located and where you're hunting there's obviously different terrain there's different um you know land features that you're going to focus on and stuff like that but also there's also you know a cultural difference that people kind of view hunting you know and and deer differently in those areas mature deer versus not mature deer and and what those things all kind of equate to and we'll dive into that into more detail man but before we do that bro why don't you give us a a background a, a little bit of information about about neil pendleton what's a What's his story? What's uh you know How'd you start hunting? You know Where do you live specifically? What do you do for a living?
4: All right, yeah.
3: Well, I started, uh, I guess, starting with the hunting piece. Uh, that's what I love talking about. I got into hunting at age 11. Uh, my father, he introduced me to it. Uh, I hunted with uh, my dad and my grandfather uh, growing up in coastal Maine. Uh, I grew up in Belfast, Maine, so I hunted just inland of that area. Uh, so I primarily started rifle hunting um, for the month of November. Uh, that's when we hunt. So I was doing a lot of that. And then from there, um, I mean, I kind of moved, you know, through college, started hunting in New Hampshire, that's where I went to college. Uh, so I've done, you know, a lot of different, uh, whether it's rifle hunting, archery hunting, getting into muzzle loading, hunting. Um, so that's pretty much, you know, how how I grew up and getting into it through my father.
2: Nice. And then, you know, did you make the switch? Because I know you all, you know, of course, you you, you, you bow hunt. When did you make that, uh, that uh, I don't want to say transition, but when did that kind of become something that became important to you?
3: Uh, so that was in 2010. I got into, I got into archery. Uh, I'm, uh, so right now I'm currently 34. So this is my 24th season that I've been hunting.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so then in 2010, living in New Hampshire, there was a lot longer season. So that's pretty much what drew me into the archery piece. Uh, it was just, you know, the fact that you get an extra month and a half so almost two months long to be able to be out there in the timber going after the, going after the deer.
2: Yeah, no, I hear that, man. And that, I'll also say, you know, for me, it's a uh... You know, as it, it's, it's sad as it might sound, it's like the older I get, man, it's like I really like those nice, you know, w- those warmer hunts <laughs> than the uh, than the bitter cold hunts. You know, what I mean? I'm not going to lie. I'm You know, I'm not going to turn in my man card necessarily. But, uh, you know, getting it, trying to get it done in October sometimes, you know, as much as I love hunting late season, late, late season is one of my favorite times to hunt just because the, the woods kind of clear out. You know, I call it like the, the fair weather hunters are kind of gone at that point to a degree. And so you get a lot of land that you typically wouldn't get to yourself. You, you, you do that time of year, I, f- I find, which I like if you can stand the cold, but my feet, for whatever reason, I can't find anything that'll keep my feet warm. So I definitely like those, uh, those archery days, uh, early archery days for sure for, uh, for the comfort. But, uh, Hey, I know you mentioned what? New Hampshire, right? So I'm, I'm guessing not to get sidetracked here, but you're a new England Patriots fan.
3: I am yes, oh, and of man. course, as I think I think I you know what you're alluding to, we have the game coming up this, this Sunday. Uh, you know, Patriots Steelers.
2: That's that's right, man. We might have to put a little. Uh, we might have to put a little uh, off off the record wager on, on this one after the after the call is over. I'm not sure how I feel about it. We we don't have a great record against Tom Brady, so you know I I might just be handing over some winnings to you if we do make a bet. <laughs> just be well, stealing, especially something candy. to play
3: for after yeah after the Pats had had a tough game you know last night uh they ended up losing so they got really something to play for they gotta they gotta beat the Steelers this weekend and try to clinch up home field
2: yeah I know I was like man I just don't send a don't send a ticked off Tom Brady to, to Pittsburgh please but you know I was I was the biggest Patriots fan last night because I was really hoping the Dolphins would lose that game because I didn't want an angry Tom Brady but it looks like that's not gonna not gonna be in my favor but back to hunting well, anyway, yeah <laughs> yep. yeah so how was your uh, 2017 season man uh you know I know you just you know via social media and some chatting back and forth that we've done i know you had kind of it it was a tough season overall you know so just give me a sense of how your season went and what was the most challenging parts of it so far
3: yeah so for me 2017 uh, it's definitely you know been been a slower season than what i'm typically used to just didn't see you know as many deer um you know i thought you know going into it had a couple of target bucks that i was after and i ended up you know prior to the season you know getting the trail camera you know photos was seeing a lot of movement a lot of daylight movement too of especially, you know, my main target. And so he was pretty killable the first month of the season. I just, you know, with that chess game, wasn't in the right spot at the right time. And, you know, a couple of times I had the right plan, you know, looked at, you know, the, you know, the trail camera, you know, pictures and looked back and said, okay, you know, why is he, you know, moving at this time in this direction and found a pattern with one particular spot where there was a West wind and, you know, the next West wind of the forecast planned on sitting there and second guessed myself and actually changed my plan. Uh, so it was, you know, that whole, you know, just wrong spot, wrong, wrong time. Um, you know, seeing less deer, I made a trip down to Ohio uh, to hunt some public ground down there, um, just, you know, with the weather and the rut hadn't really kicked off, uh, what didn't see much deer down there. Uh, so it's one of those that, you know, really had to be persistent this season. And i you know, kind of always believe that persistence will pay off in the end. You put your time in and just, you know, stay diligent that eventually you'll have a, that opportunity. Luckily, you know, after, you know, you know, starting to get a little discouraged, you know, my trip up to Maine is what really, I think, changed everything, you know, mm-hmm. going going back to the home state.
2: Right. So, it's interesting, I mean, you're getting on some deer there during the season. You're looking for your, your target deer, wrong place, wrong time. I can totally, you know, sympathize with you there, and I think John can, too, just as far as, like, the chess match goes and, you know, always kind of feeling like you're a, you're a step behind. But I'm curious. You know are you using trail camera data from this year, or do you do anything with trail camera data from from a historical perspective? Do you look at you know patterns year over year and then try to use this year's data, like you know what you know what you would call, I guess uh, MRI most recent intelligence or whatever to kind of kind of make your final um, kill stand or whatever at the, at that moment, or are you relying really solely on this year's information?
3: A lot of it is probably from from previous seasons, you know mm-hmm. looking back and seeing what the annual patterns have been. Um, you know, from listening to you know a lot of podcasts, you know, which I think are, are amazing resources. You get to learn and you know hear from experiences with other hunters. And a lot of times, especially you know these mature bucks, they do the same thing year after year. You know, it may not be the exact date, the exact time, but they're pretty close. Whether mm-hmm. it's a food source, whether it's when does go into heat, um, they're moving through certain areas at similar times and. Um, For me, really having experience uh, starting in 2011 to 2015, that spanned over five seasons with a buck that I hunted then, he taught me a lot and I really learned so much from him that that's what I've found is that we start looking at, you know, past seasons trail camera data, you can start putting those pieces of the puzzle together to say, okay, you know, this deer is moving to that area at this time because of, you know, these reasons and you start to really figure it out. Uh, And then, of course, you know, even with, you know, the most information, you know, the most hopeful plan, it doesn't always work out but at least that's, you can start to target and kind of pinpoint from looking at that trail camera data and, you know, whether it's weather, you know, using, you know, other, like I use, uh, like weather underground. So you can even look back at historical weather and wind patterns and really try to, you know, correlate and find some of those patterns.
2: Right. Yeah. I know for me, that was one of the big, you know, game changers, I think is just starting to put more of the historical pieces together. Um, you know, and starting to figure out what the deer is doing year over year. And it was, you know, the light bulb went off. I remember the first time I kind of started, understanding that, or someone had told that to me or wherever I picked it up from. And I started going back through and looking at old trail camera data and stuff like that at a particular buck. And was like, man, I was like, don't you know, I was like, that guy shows up to that scrape every year between like within this three day window, you know what I mean? It was like, it was clockwork. Um, which is, it which is nice if you can kind of get those same kind of scenarios, as you'd mentioned, you know, a lot of it kind of, got to get the weather to line up and you know, all those kind of factors as, as, as well. But at least you have a, you know, a, what I'll call a play sheet to kind of start from at least you're not starting from, from ground yeah. zero. Um, so let me ask, you. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: Yeah. I was going to say, and really having the, those starting points you know, are, are huge. I mean, I think it gives you, you know, that confidence you're going in, you know, with that plan, you can try to say, Hey, you know, it's like, this is the time I want to hunt it. Cause a lot of times there's no point to hunt certain stands. That's one thing i found out as much as you, know, you may, you know, have the thought that okay you know the, the cold front's coming it's like all these factors are lining up but when you look back and see some of other pieces of the puzzle there's no point in sitting there it's probably going to be a waste of my time if she doesn't move through that direction unless it's a like specific wind as much as you know you want to go and do it and you have to listen to your gut a lot of times uh it's just you know you're kind of just you know burning maybe that stand out
2: yeah that was the you know i think that's I think that you hit, you know, something important there is like, as you, at least this is me, I'll speak from personal experiences, like as you kind of mature as a, as a, as a hunter in general. And then, you know, I think more specifically as a bow hunter, um, you start to understand that hunting smarter is probably in your best interest than hunting, um, hunting harder, if that makes sense. Right. I don't want to say that people don't hunt hard. That's not maybe the, the right word, but like you were saying, it's like not burning out certain stand locations, knowing that when the right opportunity or when the best opportunity is going to present itself and making sure you're there at that moment to give yourself a chance. Um, cause I think yeah. early on, I think one of the biggest things is like, you know, one of my favorite quotes I think is, you know, your best stand is your next one. Um, and I think it's actually something I picked up from Don Higgins. I read something that he wrote or heard him say it somewhere um, and that might even be a Steve Bartillaism as well, but it was the notion that, you know, people get hung up on sitting certain sets that they've had success in, in the past and they feel like, you know, there's a reason that it was successful once it should be successful again. Um, and so you kind of hone in on these handful of places where you've had success where you're, you know, you're, you know, I guess data has proven out where it's, you know, your the first time you set a stand is typically the, your best set in that stand, you know? Um, and so you should always be looking forward to the next stand that you're going to set, Um, and that should mentally, you should be looking at it with confidence saying that's going to be my best one because you're going to it for a reason. You have your three reasons, whether the wind's right, you have recent intelligence there, or you had, I'm just giving examples. You had an observation set that you saw a deer walk within distance of that, that location, you know what I mean? So those are your three reasons why you should be in that stand and that should give you confidence that that's going to be your best bet. Um, which is something I've tried to follow through with. It's, it's easier said than done, I think, cause there's often you want to fall back to the <laughs> old faithfuls. Um, but you know, it takes a little bit of diligence and a little bit of, uh, persistence to, to make that happen. But I wanted to ask you, man, do you, are you hunting, you know, I know, you know we were talking offline a little bit, you know, in, in Ohio, I know you in, in the past, I've had some access to, to some different parcels, you know, but uh, we want to get a sense, are you hunting predominantly public land or private land in these different areas that you're hunting?
3: Uh, so that's where, so uh, up up here in the Northeast, uh, when I hunt, I mean, primarily, so the, I guess the states that that I've hunted, I've hunted, uh, Maine is where I grew up, so I've hunted in Maine the most, uh, New Hampshire the second most, uh, I've hunted here for quite a few years in, in New Hampshire, I've, you know, gone to Ohio for two seasons, and I've actually now hunted one day in Massachusetts, because uh, the season goes a little bit longer down in Mass, it goes mm-hmm. until the 30th this month, so I just recently bought my license there. But as far as the type of land that I hunt, uh, the biggest difference I think in the Northeast, um, which is something that I think is a little different to a lot of people, especially in the areas that you're at, is we have what's called a common land use. So unless yeah. land is posted, it's open to anyone to use it for you know different recreational things. So for hunting purposes, uh, unless you walk into and see posted signs, you can go onto any piece of woods and go ahead and hunt it. Which sounds great; cause you have access to unlimited you know amount of land but it also means if you're trying to target, you know, big, mature bucks, that anybody else can also hunt that land as well. Right. So your best laid plans can get foiled by someone else who just happens to come, you know, walking through or sees your truck parked there. Right. Uh, so that's, even though a lot of it's considered private, it's the same as hunting public in, in other states.
2: Right. John, question for you. Just curious when you about your perspective on this. Like, what do you think as a, as, you know, as a Iowan, Yeah. You know, About that type of public land use, I guess it would be similar to almost like BLM land when you go out into like the like western states like Montana or whatever. What do you what do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's something interesting, good, bad? Like, what's your take on it?
0: Um, you know, my view on public land. uh, You know, this past year out in Montana, I loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, the public land aspect this year. I I really, really wanted to see it, you know, pan out a lot better. And, you know, we used to have a lot of food plots uh, all, along the public state ground here. And I think there's a, um, there's a lack of funding that has kept them from being able to do the food plots. And in all honesty, the the chunk of t- public timber down here by me is becoming more of a forestry preserve, not a wildlife preserve. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're uh, – they seem to be focusing on the tree aspect than the, than the habitat. Right. right. Um, I still, I still love public land. There's something, there's something to be said about going out there and grinding it out there and getting it done on public. Um, I just wasn't, I I wasn't seeing the number of deer out there this year like I have in the past.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's pros and cons to it, right? I think it gives a lot of opens up access, which is, which is great. You know, and I don't know, I'm not familiar with the, the Northeast, you know, Neil, where you're, where you live and what access looks like. Um, you know, I know one of the things that's just challenging around where I live in the Philadelphia area. I think um, it could be interesting and good in this area only because there is limited state land that you can hunt in this area, and it's relatively densely populated. Um, you know, and for me, just where I live particularly, it's a little bit of a drive to any piece of the public land. It's not because it's the only land that's there to hunt. There's plenty of Farmland and stuff, once you get kind of north of Philadelphia into like the, you know, the Bucks County kind of area as you're headed toward the Poconos a little bit, um, you know, I think it would be interesting for something like that in this state, um, only because you do have a ton of, ton of farmland in, in, in certain areas that, and you have a, you have a state also with super high um, uh, deer uh, hunting, uh, hunter density numbers too. You know, something like, I don't know, it's between seven hundred and nine hundred thousand 900,000 hunters on like the first day of, of deer season. Um, so to give them the opportunity to spread out a little bit, um, might, you know, do some good as far as, uh, you know, everyone's opportunity to have ample ground to hunt if they so choose, you know? So I think that that's kind of an interesting take. I think the other thing I might solve for now, when you, if you an arrow, a deer or shoot a deer or whatever the case is, do you still have the, I assume if you have the right to hunt it, you have the right to go across, uh, property lines to retrieve anything that you're harvesting as well. Is that true?
3: Yeah, and that's what actually was funny, you know, too, when I started, you know, hearing about, you know, buddies could go, you know, to the Midwest and, and go hunting. that was The first time I actually heard that, because when it was new to me, that, you know, if you're hunting one property and your deer runs across, you know, onto, onto another property, you have to get permission to go get it. And it's like the first time I heard that, we were like, wait a minute, you have to you have to ask, you can't just go, go get your deer? And, I mean, it makes sense, but that's not something that we have to deal with unless, you know, it hits a wall of posted signs. That's really I mean, the only time where you'd have to worry about it. Um, I mean, for us, you know, it's, 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 just, you know, I mean, you have just free access to you know, kind of go where you want, and, which is something especially once you get up into the big woods where I live in New Hampshire, the Southern part of the state. So it is a little more urbanized. So of course you're going to run into, you know, houses and, you know, developments and roads and things like that. Um when you get up, you know, in, in the main more where our cabin is, you can really just, it's all paper company land. And it's just, you know, vast, you know, I and mean, there's, you know, logging roads, you know, all over the place. But I mean, you don't have to worry about, you know, running into houses or, you know, posted signs. So you kind of get to just really It's it's an adventure. I mean, you get to explore. I mean, that's part of the allure, I think, of going to those big woods is you can just, you know, you don't know what's over the next ridge. You may have never seen these woods before. You don't know what to expect. As much as you're looking, you know, for, you know, the the next big bucket, you just get to see things that you've never seen before. And it's kind of like you get that, you know, that boyhood, almost like an adventure where you just, you know, really get to see, see things and, you know, just taking the
4: sights.
2: Yeah, i definitely, I agree with you there, man. That's the, one of the things that I, I do enjoy, you know, hunting, you know, I got to do some big woods hunting. Well, you know, this year, definitely when I was in Ohio, um, was all big woods hunting. Um, you know, you're right. You're always kind of curious. It, it's, it's, <laughs> It's good and it's bad for me because it's. I always have the curiosity of what's around the next bend or over the next knoll or whatever, and so I have the hardest time like figuring out where I'm going to set up because I'm like, well, let me just walk over <laughs> this next ridge. <laughs> you know What I mean, it's like, and then I get up, and then and when you like,
3: do set up, you, you second guess it because you're like, yeah, oh, it's yeah. like, well, maybe that next ridge or that next tree or you know that that that, that you know that next little piece it could be a little better or you know that could yeah. you know where the deer are traveling. So that is the tough part about having that much access. It,
2: it is, but you know, I'd rather have uh, I'd rather have more than. Uh, then less. it's funny you mentioned about, you know, going to retrieve your deer. It's because growing up where I grew up, you know, we always knew all the farmers that were around us, you know, everyone had land and we, our families grew up together. And even if we weren't like best of friends or whatever, um, during hunting season, it's like if you shot a deer and it ran over onto, you know, the college's farm next door or whatever, it's like, I just went over and got it. You know what I mean? Like there was no, like go talk to them. Cause it's like, I would see them at school or I would see them at at the grocery store or the church or, you know, we'd have, you know, wrestling practice together or whatever, you know what I mean? So there was no like, you know, I don't know maybe it was just a simpler time than all the way around possibly. Right.
3: Yeah. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, of course, then you always hear that, you know, the opposite end, you know, somebody who didn't, you know, give someone permission, didn't allow someone to get it. It's just, you can't, you, know, you scratch your head on that. It's mm-hmm. like, wow. It's like to even think that that, that could happen, you know, for, for me growing up and never having to worry about that there is there is you know pretty much no boundaries it's just you know just completely different way of thinking
2: yeah and I just don't understand what the reason would be to not allow someone to go you know pick up a you know go gather up an animal that they've harvested you know I mean like I don't I just I don't understand the thought process of why you would deny someone that it's not as though you that you killed it or um, that it's yours because honestly it's not yours it's owned by the state it's a state resource you know it's, it's not even that you own the wildlife that inhabits your land in general um, but anyway, that's, we could go on that rant for forever, but I want to hear a little bit about the areas that you're hunting. You know, I want to talk about the topography, terrain, land features, um, that, are, you know, influence how you hunt the, 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 Northeast area. So if you could start, just kind of give us a little bit of, I know you mentioned it's big woods. So just give us kind of like, you know, if you would just do some theater of the mind here and paint, uh, paint the listeners a picture of, uh, of where you're hunting typ- typically and w- what things kind of look like in those areas.
4: Yeah, so uh,
3: when I go up to the cabin up in Maine, I mean, up there, it's all paper company land, and there's actually part of a land trust uh, where it is, where there's, I think, five million acres, I think, between Maine and New Brunswick as part of the land trust and never be developed. So the paper company, they can come in, they can log it, you know, and it's all, you know, it's all forestry. Uh, They can put in roads and do all that. But as far as what's there for for cabins, you know, that's what's going to be there. There's nothing else that's going to be developed. Um, So that's where you have, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of, you know the and this I think is another probably new concept. Have you heard of a deer yard before?
2: I've not heard of a deer. I've heard of deer yarding when they when they huddle during the uh, yeah. Know,
3: the so cold that's nights, pretty but... yeah. So that's so up up in up in you know a lot of the northeast states historically they because we used to get really severe winters the deer would do that they'd go to you know what we call the yards mm-hmm. and they would yard up and so a lot of that. You know, can be whether it's spruce groves or cedar swamps because they have feed and have cover, so the snow won't get as deep. But a lot of those, you know, have been, you know, you know, the paper companies have cut those off, you know, for the timber and for the wood. Um, and then a lot of other, you know, whether it's beech or oak, I mean, a lot of that stuff is also, you know, being cut off. So as far as the terrain, it's, it's always changing. So you could have, you know, select cuts. You could have clear cuts. Uh, you could have, you know, new growth. You could have, you know, depending on where it is, you know, up on top of a ridge or near a lake, you could still have a little bit of, you know, older woods. I wouldn't call them mature forest. Um, you have, you know, some bigger trees. You still had could have some mixed hardwoods left in there. Uh, so, I mean, that's where there's just, you know, really vast open woods. Um, a lot of it's thick, so it's not necessarily, when I, when I say open, like you can't see through it a long ways um, because you have a lot of undergrowth that, that's there, uh, which becomes feed for the deer, that's where in the northern states a, a lot of it is i mean there's not like a lot of mass crops it's just mm-hmm. you know them browsing it as they walk around uh, so you kind of wonder sometimes especially if it's late in the season and everything's brown and dead looking it's like where what, what the deer eating and they just continually eat all day long and browse
2: right so do, are you do you have some elevation change in, in that area? are you working with elevation change or what's it look like from that perspective
3: yeah so there is a, a lot of elevation change it's it's more uh what we call ridges are probably more like hills i know when i have mm-hmm. driven through you know pennsylvania of course you see just hills that go you know for miles and miles these ridges that just are really long mm-hmm. um but we have more they're they don't have like long tops they just kind of come up to a point and they may go off you know for a mile or two but there's really one kind of defined high point and they'll go off in other areas it's not like just a big long running ridge so there is you know a lot of elevation changes there's you know swamps that they're scattered in Um, whether it's, you know, more like marsh type swale grass, um, with, you know, river or small ponds in there, or whether it's like cedar swamps. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of, you know, different types of terrain and different features that are up there. And a lot of the questions that come up, you know, from people, are you seeing the deer, you know, up high, which means, are they up on top of the ridges? Are they down the lowlands, like down the swamps and held up there? Mm -hmm. So there's two different, you know, kind of areas where a lot of times, you know, you'll find the deer. And that is one thing up there that, you know, we're talking about, you know, kind of the next stand is the best stand. Well, we're in many ways forced do that because the deer densities are low and they do move from year to year. So you're pretty much going back to the drawing board. And there is some spots where historically because of terrain features that they will, you know, be there year after year. But for the most part, they're, they're moving mostly because of the logging. When they've, you know, harvested a certain area a few years afterwards, you're getting that new growth, which becomes food they'll be in those areas so you're having like those pockets of deer that, that bounce around so one year that was really good and you found a ton of sign there was a lot of deer that, that were in there that there may not be a deer for another two or three miles um you so you may have to move over quite a bit and have the occasional deer that roams through but it's they're kind of it, it's always different from year to year
2: right that's interesting because I, I mean, that was one thing that i was definitely keen in on um when i was in ohio that's because it was similar it was just big actually the if you got off the public land, off the back side of it, I think it was on the uh, the north side of that property. Was a paper company that owned owned a bunch of property, um, and it was kind of what you're kind of describing: big woods, you know, no no agriculture or that was really around. So they were you know living off of acorns and brows and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, it's just interesting how like I I hunted it the same but different, right? So if I'm hunting, you know, where I hunted last year in Ohio, when I'm hunting Pennsylvania, like our family farms and stuff like that. So I don't hunt food sources per se. Like I don't typically often sit on a food source. It's like I'll often sit like in a, you know, in a pinch point headed toward a food sor- source or coming back from a food source to bed. Or I'll find like a saddle between two high points that it's kind of like moving, that'll move deer from point A to, to food source or whatever the case might be. So I was following similar concepts while I was in Ohio, only I was finding saddles that deer were using to run to these fresh clear cuts. And those clear cuts were honestly like the public land food, uh, public land food plot. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was like find what's relatively fresh, you know, or relatively new. And as long as it's not too, I think our criteria was something like within like, you know, zero to three years is really, you know, I was out with my buddy, Chad, and that was kind of his, his gauge was like anything that was like zero to three years of growth is, is something worth uh, investigating and hunting over three years. He really was, wasn't so interested in it because at that point you're getting to a point to where the food is now starting to elevate just slightly above deer level. Um, and so yeah. that would be somewhere that unless you really had intel to tell you to be there, you might want to, you might want to overlook it. So I'm just curious, man, like how, in, in terms of like stand setup up in the Northeast versus when you go to Ohio, like how are you, how are you determining, you know, like, are you using the same principle? Well, I'm sure you're using the same principles, but I mean, how are you kind of, I guess, distilling the information and determining where you're going to set a stand up in the Northeast versus how you would take, you know, your approach to set up a stand location in, you know, a Midwestern state like Ohio?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, a couple of times that, that I've been to Ohio, I mean, the stand placement, I mean, I don't want to say a lot of it's... Uh more obvious, I mean, I guess, but you do have obviously a lot higher deer density, so you can see, you know, whether it's trails, especially if you're going, you know, a little bit later in the season, you know, once the leaves have fallen, you can start to see, you know, kind of those beaten runs and trails, and so depending on the part of the state of Maine where you go, a lot of people, if they hunt over, you know, more in the Forks area, you know, over in Jackman, there's bigger woods over there, the deer do seem to follow a lot more runs um, but in the area where our camp is, more over in the kind of down eastern, you know, part of the state, um, you're getting the central, um, more the eastern part of part of the Maine. They don't really seem to, you know, stick to like specific trails. They just seem to kind of they'll come through that general area, but it could be a couple hundred yards off one way or the other. And so, being primarily a, a stand hunter, and that's something that. I've always, you know, grown up hunting from a stand. You know, I do love to do some tracking in snow and hop on hop on a track and you know, that you know, catch up to you know a nice buck once you've cut that good track. I've you know done some still hunting, but I really have never you know kind of had the patience for you know walking and stopping and just waiting. So I've primarily stand hunted. So looking at stand locations. A lot of it is you know looking for you know the signs. So whether you're looking you know for for deer droppings, whether you're looking for rubs or scrapes, or whether you're looking for a lot of times tracks and getting back you know, to, I think, you know, how we used to do it before trail cameras is looking for a lot of that sign. Um, uh, and once you found, you know, big tracks, you know, that buck in that area and you see, you know, what looks like to be, you know, a 200 plus pound track, um, or if you see multiple, you know, in that area, you know, that's a spot you then need to kind of start to look at, um, and really say, okay, where, where do I think is the best odds and really weigh out the percentages? If I'm going to put in my time and hunt a spot that eventually there's going to be that opportunity that, that a big buck's going to come through here. And that's something that I think for us, just recently, we've kind of more gravitated towards, you know, with my, my father and I uh, doing that, where it's that like you want to find a spot where you're going to say, okay, that if I sit here long enough, there, there's a good odds that something is going to come through, versus you know trying to find a spot where it looks like there's all kinds of activity and seeing a sign or getting a picture and then you know setting up there because of that. So it's really you know whether it's pinch points between a terrain feature, you know, in a swamp, uh, whether it's you know looking at you know benches and saddles. Um, you know, using lakes to almost make, you know, like a a pinch point, you know, in between lakes. Um, there's a lot of features that that go into trying to find stand placement and then you have to go and look at it and actually see, okay, am I seeing sign coming through here and, uh, up in those areas, snow always helps, but Mm -hmm. unfortunately we don't seem to really get any snow anymore. Um, which for me, I usually try to plan my hunt to Maine, living down in New Hampshire it's a six hour drive up to our cabin and in Maine, you can't hunt Sundays. So to go up for a weekend, it's really just, it's not it's not worth the drive, getting out of work on Friday, six hours up, hunt one day, yep. and turn around and come six hours back. So I, I usually plan for me uh, to go up in the late season, which the way the season's run in Maine is there's a rifle season, that's the month of November, and it yep. always ends the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and there's a, then there's a week of muzzle muzzleloader. So for me, knowing that usually would work, you know, most places close on on Thanksgiving, I usually try to start my vacation to save a couple of days right around the time of Thanksgiving, you know, so it falls on Thursday, take off, hunt the last couple of days, of rifle, and and be up there for for the muzzleloader season. Because that's when the bucks, you know, the the primary rut's over, so their does in their area have have all been bred. So now they're just seeking out and they're just roaming, you know, it could be 10, 15, 20 mile ranges Hmm. uh, where they're trying to look for another doe. Uh, so when that starts to happen, you're now seeing a lot more buck movements. So they're not held up in, you know, a smaller area. So that's when you get better odds looking at those terrain features and just really trying to, you know, put your time in the spot and, and almost wait them out.
4: Right.
2: Yeah. I definitely kind of ran into that this year in, in the big woods what you were talking about with the, the, the distance of, of, of movement just in general, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing I think whenever you're hunting, you know, uh, you know, like in the farm that we have back in, back, back home or whatever where it's like, if I see a buck on a pattern, it's like, I can pretty much guess that he's probably going to come in and and hit that same pattern every handful of days, every two or three days, he's going to come back to that same spot. If, if I have the right intel, right. To pattern one in the big woods is tough, man, because like, you don't know how far they're traveling. You know to me, Like he might, I, I had one on camera that was a really beautiful, 10 point and I was Jones to like the nth degree that he was on camera and he was in this pinch point. And I was like, man, that's it. I'm going to sit there the first three days. And like that deer, I went back and checked the camera again after like, I guess it was near the last day that we were there and he never, ever made his way back to that same spot. You know, he's like, where did he go? You know, it's like, he obviously was running that. We had him, I believe on camera on the ridge behind us too. So it's like he was in that area. It's just, he never came by that spot again. Um, And just so the distance that they have to travel trying to get,
4: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
2: Um, hunting ag land, it's just, it's just a different animal. And that was, like, you know, I think we talked about this on one podcast. That was like probably one of my biggest learning opportunities this year where I was hunting was just in that scenario, I needed to be more aggressive and be more willing to move more often. Um, only because I wasn't getting good deer activity. It sounds like you're kind of setting up and doing the opposite of that, which is that if you see what you need to see, you're going to put your time. And is that what I'm hearing? Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. If you're tired of cheap-ass flimsy handsaws, saws, or better yet, a pole saw that doesn't work for a damn, try Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest saws on earth. Order now by visiting wickedtreegear.com and use the promo code TRUTH to save 20% on your purchase and also receive free ground shipping. And now back to the show. Yes,
3: yeah, it sometimes becomes a, a waiting game where you know, a lot of times, you know, I'd sit mornings and evenings, you know, you try to wait for, you know, the activity that's happening in the morning and happening, you know, before dark in the evening. But what I found is that a lot of that movement, they just don't stop. It's like, Mm -hmm. there is no real, I mean, even when we've gotten snow and you hop on a track, they just, they will walk all day long, not lay down, not, you know, sidestep and feed. It's just straight line and just going. Hmm. So when they're covering that much ground and they're just walking all day long, it's, I mean, you're pretty much your best odds are to just pick one spot and, and just wait it out and have, have an area where it's like the deer are going to have to eventually come through there because of terrain features. Uh, so, I mean, w- one example of one spot, um, you know, is whether it's, you know, between, you know, a couple of lakes that has a little pinch point of like a thoroughfare, you know, that, that narrows out where it may be, you know, 100 yards between. Well, as opposed to going a couple of miles out, of wrong, uh, out around the lakes, they're probably going to have to come through through that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but then of course when you start looking at, you know, the cuts, it's like, well, is that one seven or eight years old on, on one side, the other one's now four or five. Well, yeah, there, there's not as many deer in those area. So are you going to put in your time there? Or are you going to go sit somewhere over like a big swale swamp where you have maybe, you know, like a couple of mile, you know, stretch in one direction and another mile stretch in in, in another direction. And you have that narrowest point in the middle where maybe the beavers had dammed up the brook coming through. So the water flowing out on the opposite side of the beaver dam. It's, it's, it's a lot shallower so that the deer naturally going to cross at that narrowest point where there's also too shallower water um, but you may sit there you know for three four days or even a week and there may not be any deer that comes through during daylight and all of a sudden it's that giant buck you know that that's, mm-hmm. which is why you go up to the northeast you know to hunt
2: right nice yeah it's, it's i like man i don't know you know it's i <laughs> I, I totally hear I, I understand what you're saying and it, it's in it's like it makes sense. I would just, I personally would just have a hard time. I would have a hard time doing it. I think. <laughs> you know what I mean. So that's
3: why. That's why I started laughing. Cause you can just tell it just by your your expression. It's 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 completely different. You go from seeing a lot of deer and being entertained and waiting and waiting, you know, for for a good one. To you're just waiting to see a deer. It's like just to have a sign of life. It's like see a squirrel, see a bird sometimes. Right. And but. It, but, but then it's like you could have, you know, the biggest deer you've ever dreamed of step around the corner and that's not, not just rack size, but, you know, the, the bigger bodies that, that you get up there, right uh, you know, because when you start looking at, I think, you know, you know, the different subspecies, you know, of, of types of deer, the line comes across Canada and kind of goes through Maine. So we start getting to that central, you know, the upper portion of Maine, you're getting some huge body deer where, you know, get it getting deer, you know, over 200 pounds, I, I don't want to say it is you know, is the norm, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it is, it is a lot more common. It's a real possibility. And then of course you start getting up, pushing, you know, 300 pounds, um, you know, dressed that you know, not even talking live weight, right. um, you know, happens, you know, usually, you know, in the upper 200 pound classes, which that's just, it's a whole different breed of animal. I mean, to see a deer that big, it's, it's, it's a sight to behold.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, that was definitely the, you know the 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 thing in Ohio that's that was the toughest part cuz you know we were there 8 8 days I guess that we hunted ish and i saw you know what was it three deer in 8 days you know like that was just that was tough but i mean you're 100% right it's like we i was doing it for, holding out for hope that you know i was going to see the right one because the age structure on that piece of property just what we had on trail camera told us that you know now we're talking inches here versus you know the the body size that you're talking about but just a big mature deer Um, just in general, like that was a real possibility because the age structure was really good. Um, so that's kind of what kept you going, but you're right. It's like, I would see, you know, birds and be like, man, that's probably all I'm going to see today (laughs) is
3: birds. (laughs) But, uh, sometimes it's like, you know, we get back to camp and and it's like, all right, it's like, I didn't even see a squirrel today. It's like, you know, it's like, wow, it's like, it's just. You are know, just waiting for a for a, a sign of life to walk by and you sit, you know, from sun up to, to sundown. It's like, or even just putting, you know, a bunch of hours in and then walk mm-hmm. around. It, you know, it's it, it's tough. It you know, becomes mentally taxing. Right. Especially yeah. sitting out in the freezing cold.
2: Yeah. And then it gets, you get to the spot, the point where you start to get a little meta where you're like, am I actually alive? Or is this all just a figment of like, of some like weird energy of the universe that, you know what I mean? Where it's like, if nobody knows that I'm here and there's nothing else that's alive around me, am I actually <laughs> here? You know what I mean? It's like. You know, maybe I'm the only one that has those deep thoughts, and I should keep them to myself, possibly.
3: Um, well, when you sit out in the woods long enough, Clint, I'm sure, sure we've all had, you know, some weird thoughts when we're sitting out there long enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: moving on to more, uh, more real-world things here, I want to get into, you know, you mentioned earlier cutting a track of a, of a big deer. Then um, you mentioned, you referenced a couple of times the 200-pound mark, or just like a big, mature deer when you get up in uh, that area of the country. Um so I, I want to kind of dive into dive into that, you know, because I know that, you know, what kind of I mentioned at the beginning and the social media post that you made was about the 200 pound deer and you were talking about getting your big uh, buck patch. So, you know, I, I've personally never heard of this. This was the first time I've heard of it. And, you know, um, it, it was kind of funny because when you sent that post out and I and I saw it, 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 was, it was interesting because a buddy of mine and I were just talking about a deer that we had on camera actually at my at my dad's place. And we were just kind of commenting on the fact that, you know, he might be a rare 200 plus pound Pennsylvania buck because that's for PA. That's a, that's a huge deer. If he's 200 or or bigger and he looks like he has a real possibility of it. And then I saw your post and just thought like, man, I got to learn more about this. So I'm just curious, what is the 200 pound patch distinction and where does that come from?
3: So, uh, well, growing up in Maine, obviously the question, in any type of, you know, hunting community is, you know, you get your deer yet, right. Right. I'm sure sure you've, I'm sure that's the same in Pennsylvania. So, you know, you get your deer yet. And of course, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, I got my deer and everyone wants to know, is it a good one? How many points, you know, stuff like that. But then of course, you know, it's, you know, Hey, well, if it was, Oh, it was a good one. Well, was it over 200 pounds? And that was a goal, you know, that I've always you know, been growing up with because that's when you get, you know, in, you get an entry in the biggest buck clubs of Maine, uh, which it has to be, you know, over 200 pounds, uh, dressed. So, you know, the, you know, obviously you've had to gut it out the deer. You have to remove the heart, lungs and liver, uh, you know, for it to go and qualify for that, and you know, has to, has to be weighed on certified scales, and so that, I mean, because I I think maybe historically, like the racks, you know, growing up in Maine, you know, from hearing my my grandfather talk, a lot of it was is that you know there was it was for meat. I mean, that's how you fed your families a, a lot of times was was going hunting, and so then it started to get into to bigger deer, and so racks really weren't something that was, you know, I, I guess a goal really of of many hunters. So it was looking you know for the the biggest deer possible. And, you know, it's, you know, obviously a sign of, you know, the mature deer. And so that 200 pound mark, I I don't know exactly, you know, where it stemmed from, but in a lot of the Northeast states, um, in Maine, you get that, that big buck club. And, you know, even when I posted that post on Facebook, because that's something that for 24 seasons, you know, had eluded me in Maine and that, you know, meant a lot to me that I wanted to get one over, you know, 200 pounds. And so when I finally accomplished it, you have other, you know, other people who have gotten entries, and they're like, "Welcome to the club." It's you know that accomplishment and that you know that kind of almost bat badge of honor that that you've that you've done it. And for me, um, in New Hampshire it's also a club. They call it you know the the, the Trophy Buck Club uh, of New Hampshire. Uh, I've done it four times in, in New Hampshire. Um, so I actually did it my first morning ever hunting in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Within probably the, I think it was about, within about the first hour. And that one meant a lot to me because my grandfather, you know, growing up, he'd always said, you know, hey, you know, for us Pendleton hunters, you know, I, I think you're going to grow up to be, you know, the best hunter, you know, out of all of us. And you know, you're shooting, you know, some big bucks, you start showing a lot of potential. And so before he passed away, cause health was starting to diminish. That was like every step I took in the woods was, you know what? I, I want to get one over 200 pounds. I want to get one over 200 pounds. I want to mm-hmm. prove it to him, you know, before he passes. And so I was fortunate that season back in like either 2005 or 2006, Um, that was, that was with a firearm. I did it with a rifle and then I'd gotten three others, uh, through, through archery with a bow, um, that were, that were over 200 pounds dressed, but I could never do it in Maine. I would come close, you know, 198 pounds, 196 and a bunch in the one eighties. Um, but so finally, you know, this season is when I I was able to finally, you know, complete, I guess, you know, my, my mission and kind of, you know, get, get in the club.
2: Nice, man. That's awesome. That's that. And that's cool that you were able to, uh, have that, you know, make that happen, you know, while your grandfather was still around. That's uh that's that's a cool story, man. It, it's interesting that that's actually, like, a thing, because, like, I didn't realize that it was actual, like, a, a legit, like, record book, like, thing that was, like, captured and recorded. Like, that's that's kind of cool, man. Like, I didn't realize that that yeah. was, you know, when I first well, read your post and was, you know, thinking about it, I was like, oh, this must be, like, a group of buddies or, like, a larger, you know, hunting group <laughs> that you are know, affiliated yeah. with, you know what I mean, that, like, they... They talk about this, and this is something that they, they they discuss and they try to achieve or whatever. But like the way you're describing it, it's like almost I don't want to say like a Pope and Young Club because I know that they do a lot more than just record deer and elk and oh, yeah. rams it's, it's or whatever. The same but, type thing, right? Yeah. But that's yeah, man, that's cool. I'm curious, man. Like so, like I had an interest in it as soon as I had had seen the story. You know, just from like you wrote first, you wrote an incredible story. Um, you know how it all well, kind of unfo- how it all kind of unfolded. Um, and, but I'm just curious, you know, when we first started talking about it, you know, via, I think it was via Facebook, you know, you mentioned, you know, when you talk to other hunters about it, and I'm I'm curious what other hunters aside from myself, like what their reaction has been when you talk about the 200 pound distinction, whenever you're talking about, um, you know, hunters from Ohio or Illinois or whatever, like what's their take on it?
3: Yeah, I mean, probably the conversation that stands out the most to me was in this season. I'm down in Ohio, and I was running, you know, a little kind of lost, you know, apartment, you know, from a guy down there, you know, that I happened to, you know, just kind of meet, you know, through, you know, calling before I went down, you know, the season before. And so we're standing in the garage. It's him and his brother. You know, a couple of buddies, you know, are hanging out, and we're all down there. And, you know, if I start talking about, you know, this, you know, you know, obviously you're trading deer stories and accomplishments. I'm starting to talk about weights. You're seeing some of those, you know, kind of funny looks. And I talk about, you know, the, you know, the 200 you know, pound mark and, you know, how, you know, New Hampshire is like, I've gotten four over 200 pounds and like, well, hold on, wait a minute. Like, like when I said, well, I was saying 200, they're like inches. Right.
4: And I'm like, no, no, no.
3: Like, like weight, because for us, you know, growing up, you know, in Maine and everyone in New Hampshire, you know, that I'm friends with, it's usually, you know, that's how big was it? How much did it weigh? Not people want to know how many points, but inches really until probably the last five years, I'd say, because of, you know, social media and TV. It's, right. I, I don't even think people really knew about inches or even scoring racks, mm-hmm. to be honest. It was always the records have always been for weight. I mean, you hear about, you know, these, these certain bucks. I mean, even even the bucks who have the record racks in some of these states, it, it was always about, well, how much did it weigh? That's always the question. That's what more people want to know. So to see their reactions, and like, wow, that's pretty cool. I've never really thought of weighing my deer. You know, after you know, after I go and shoot it, and you know, for for us growing up, we always heard, you know, the kind of the stereotype was, you know, out out west in the western states or Midwest is that you know they they do live weights. They weigh them, you know, with everything still inside. They don't they don't gut out the deer um, because we're still caught up on that weight thing. It still wasn't even really a topic of measuring racks or inches.
2: Right. So I'm mean, I want to make sure I'm like clear on what the weight means. So like the, it's, it's gutted, right. It, is the hide on, like, yep. are you taking any of like, are you taking it off at like the first knuckle, of the, or the knees for the hinds in the, in the fronts or like, what all, it's like what, what goes on the scale, I guess is what I'm asking.
3: So pretty much, I mean, you've gone obviously, you know, taking out, you know, the, the stomach, mm-hmm. taking out the, the intestines entrails, you know, gone, gone through that. Um, then from there you're going to in the inner sanctum and removing you know, the heart, lungs and, and liver um, and so then from there, yeah, you're going to the tagging station, you know, you bring it, because uh, actually we have, in most of the states still up here, um, I mean, especially Maine and New Hampshire, Massachusetts, you can phone them in, but uh, in those states, you have to bring them someplace to have them checked in. So you, right. when, once you go and have taken the deer, you know, you put your transportation tag on it, you bring it to a tagging station, and then every tagging station asks you, do you want to weigh it? And, you know, most everyone who's gotten, you know, especially a good buck, they want to weigh it. You know, it's bragging rights time. You know, hoist it up on the scale. So you stand there and you get to, you know, watch whether it's a, you know, digital scale, you know, or it's, you know, the old style scale where you're watching the needle, you know, turn around. and You get to see, you know, what that weight is. And then it's recorded. And a lot of times in tagging stations, you know, they have the board where they write down, you know, the name of the hunter, how many points that they got, and then the weight beside it. So what goes on the scale is the whole entire deer just with, you know, the you know the guts and heart lungs and liver removed
2: yeah man that's got to be a tough hunt too man because i mean you're talking about big woods and i'm assuming that big of a deer has to be a pretty mature animal right and so the conditions in the big woods are tough enough as it is and then tag on the fact that that's got to be a mature animal to hit that weight like that's that's a tough hunt right
4: oh yeah i mean it's 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 real 24
3: 24 years worth of tough Well, I think growing up, I had heard that, you know, for for most hunters, like I can't remember if it was like one lifetime or two lifetimes of, you know, 70 years of hunting and stuff like that is what it would take, you know, to kind of get, you know, that 200 pound mark. There was a lot of different numbers that were thrown out there, but it was one of those things that it takes a long time. It's, you know, tough hunting and some, you know, fantastic hunters who are, you know, really know what they're doing, never, never have been able to get over that mark. And obviously other guys who are really accomplished, you know, can do it, you know, year after year or every other year. Um, you know, it's like, I, I know when you start talking about weights, I mean, for us, you know, I think, you know, I mean, there's big names obviously in the hunting industry now, but, you know, growing up in this area and the Benoit family was probably, you know, the biggest name, uh, they're, you know, big trackers and, you know, you hear things like, you know, their lifetime, you know, one of them lifetime average is over 200 pounds. You hear things you know like that, where it's just like, wow, it's like, that's what, you know, really gets your, you know, your blood boiling, um, you know, growing up and hearing those stories where you just. Really didn't hear about you know racks or inches or points. It was just the the weight of the deer and the and the body size, which is also means you know mature you know old old buck. Right. So
2: John, man, what do you think? Uh, maybe uh, maybe a trip to to Maine in our future for a two hundred pound patch. Try our try our hey, hand in the we, big woods.
0: Yeah, if we can't get it done, we can always go get lobster or something. You know, <laughs> I mean. There's good food there, no matter what, whether it's venison or right. lobster, crab, you know, something. Um, you no, know, you know, and it's funny. It's it's funny, you know, talking about how people will uh, will reference certain deer and their, you know, whether they're talking about the live weight or field dressed weight. Um, you know, where I come from, uh, initially in Kentucky, inches and weight is is nothing. Uh, it is the number of points of the deer mm-hmm. i mean you could have a a two-year-old that's a 16 pointer and that will trump a seven-year-old 180 inch buck that's uh 10 points any day of the week yeah. um so it, it was always kind of comical to me and, and when i first started hunting i you know the, i didn't know any better i just thought well a 13 pointer is better than an eight pointer mm-hmm. i mean sure one was bigger than the other but you know then it was over time then you start thinking about how old is the deer and how many inches is the deer and stuff like that um but it it, it, it's always it always fascinates me to you know to hear and talk to guys from different areas and that makes it so much cooler because there's always something there's always an old tradition in a certain area that everybody grew up with differently than somebody else you know
2: yeah the 200 the, the 200 inch patch club man that would be a cool short film you know
3: just well, and 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 getting back to the patch too, and so sorry to cut you off on on, on the on the film point. Um, I don't know if you want to mention that a little more, because I was going to mention something about the patch itself.
2: No, yeah, yeah. The, just uh, I want to hear about the patch.
3: Yeah. So with with the patch, I mean, because I guess to really specify what the patch is and what you know it, it was historically used for um you know i know some guys that you know they fill out you know at the tag station the big buck card you know that you get to send in you know and then they send you back the patch or some people like my dad he's gotten seven over 200 pounds he just keeps the cards he's never he's never actually sent them in that's for him good, good enough you know he knows that he made it um he's accomplished it um you know where a lot of other guys they send in the cards and they get a patch back that is meant to put on your hunting jacket <laughs> because, you know, it's not, it's not like, you know, nowadays we have, you know, different camo schemes and different outfits, you know, whether it's raining, early season, late season, you know, you had your hunting jacket, you know, it was November, it was cold. You you put on that jacket and even in certain states up here, you know, Maine was traditionally more your black and red checkered. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what, you know, it's what you wore as a Maine hunter. Some of the other states, like especially Vermont, it was more, you know, green, green and black. Yeah, those checkered. And so you would put that patch and wear it with pride on your jacket. So when you saw another hunter in the woods, you're like, "Damn, you know this guy. He, he's a good hunter. He has that, you know, that patch, you know, on on his arm." Um, I mean, I've, I've you know, I, I haven't gone and done that. I just you know, kind of keep them, you know, in the envelope, you know, that that they get mailed to me. And a lot of times, um, I haven't gotten my main one yet. But I know um, the guy. He's the uh, the president of the the Trophy, um, you know, Antler and Skull Association in New Hampshire. Uh, Roscoe, Um a great guy. Does a, does a lot for hunting in our in our state. Um, he's the one who you know is kind of the the record keeper. Um, so whether it's, you know, he scores the racks, he, you know, measures, uh, you know, he records all the weights and he'll send you, um, you know, your patch, a little letter congratulating you with a little note. And then at the end of the year, when we actually have our, what's called hunting digest in New Hampshire, that's printed out, they have the top 10 deer every year for archery, muzzle loader and firearms. And it's not rack scores. It is weights That's Hmm. what's listed in the hunting digest that tells all, all your, your laws and regulations and so they had the the top 10 list so then with that to to make to make the top 10 which in 2015 i had uh the biggest archery buck in 2000 what was it 2012 it was the 10th and then 2011 it was it was the 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 fifth biggest in, in new hampshire but so you actually get that like knowledge and it's not just that hey you made the club but you actually get you know, a, a ranking of where you were in the state and they have in the, uh, the, the harvest survey at the end of the year, they'll have like all the 200 plus pound deer and where it ranked and how many, um, you know, were, were harvested.
2: That's awesome, man. It's, I, I like the fact that you actually get a patch cause it makes me think of a biker gang. Like it's almost like a, <laughs> it's like a deer gang. You know what I mean? Like, an, I just, I don't know. I'm getting this mental picture of like a leather vest with all my patches on it. Like I kind of want a patch now. I totally want to, I totally want to do this. Um, now, I also find it interesting that the different states have different color plaid that they're wearing hunting. I never, I never recognized that before. Is that like a that's a real thing? Like the one state wears red, the other state wears predominantly green. Is that?
3: True. I mean, it's it, it's a, a little bit. I mean, it just kind of happened that more, you know, through through Maine, I think was more the red and black, and some of the other states were were, were green and black. Um, I mean, I can't say it's, you know necessarily state state like specifics. I know you know a lot of guys in Maine have also worn you know the the green and black, and you know I'm sure a lot of other guys have worn the red and black, you know, from from different states. Right. Um But yeah, it was just kind of one of those. that that's what you saw, you know, geographically, you know, hmm. you know you know looking back that was kind of just more more of a tradition and you know I don't know where necessarily all that started from but I know you know growing up you know the the jacket that was you know that was you know that was given to me the the hunting jacket you know it was red and black my dad's was red and black and then when I see you know hunters from other states that have you know the the green and black um just wasn't something that was common in Maine that I saw really it's known to Vermont I think but also also in New Hampshire because Vermont has a real strong you know hunting heritage um you know in 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 their state
2: right Yeah, man, it's just interesting, like the cultural differences, you know, um, in the the heritage differences from from state to state, and what you know different places latch on to is as important to them and stuff like that. I mean, I always just find it interesting how everyone has their own little nuances, how things are done differently, and what's important to them. But uh, I know that you you mentioned Maine, right? Was where you got this most recent two hundred pound patch, right? Yep. Okay. So I want to kind of I kind of want to walk through this and have you kind of walk us through the the, the story of the hunt here. So if you wouldn't mind, set the stage for us for this hunt. Um, you know, I know it was a long time in the making for this particular area. Um, you know, so if you wouldn't mind, let us know what season it is and just kind of walk us through, you know, the, the hunt for this last 200 patch or this, this, your first main 200 pound patch.
3: Yeah. Um, so I guess the really kind of, since story is that, um, you know, as I said, growing up, I hunted coastal Maine, so it was, you know, smaller woods. So my father, um, you know, basically he had, he told me this a few years ago, he had, you know, a, a few a few goals in life. He wanted to own a Harley Davidson, he wanted to own a piece of land, um, have it bought and paid for, all these things, and also ha- have a camp on, on a lake. Well, he had gotten a camp, I think it was about 13 years ago when we were talking earlier today, and he, he had, you know, the you know, first camp up in the big woods. And it was up on top of a hill that had beautiful views, you know, looking across the lakes. And so that's what, that was, that's what was deer camp uh, for, for the last, you know, like 10, 10, 11 seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd go up there, we'd, we'd hunt from that camp. And so we every year you get further and further away. And so we started to venture off to where I hunted this last season. Uh, well, this season actually. So I, where I hunted this season, this was the furthest end of the range. Well, since you always aspire to have one on, on a lake, He had then, you know, looked at different property. he found one that was becoming available on, like, the bigger lake in the area, which is great for fishing. So he he took that opportunity. He sold the the old camp uh, to one of my buddies. He ended up buying that. And then, so we started, uh, it was last season, was our our first season at, at the new cabin. So it's, you know, back to the drawing board, even though we had hunted in this area, we weren't really as familiar with it. So it's trying to figure out you know where are the deer looking at terrain features and finding you know good new spots whether it's looking at the ridges or looking down down at swamps uh so last year uh we had you know a successful year It was the you know, first year at the new camp um some of you guys have do you guys have game poles or like you know the you know like the buck a tree or something you hang your deer yep. from when you get them yeah buck pole so um so we had the the buck pole at camp last year we had you know two nice bucks that that, that we hung on it and uh so for this year Coming in the season, I said, okay, well, I know where we had success last year, but i got to try to find some new spots as, as well. So I made a few trips up there this summer, and when I'm out fishing, you know, trolling around for salmon, you know, out in the lakes, I'm always scouting, right, whether it's in a boat, whether it's, you know, riding on a four-wheeler in my truck. I'm always, you know, looking around, you know, for, for deer and for sign and, and the next best spot. Um, so this summer when when I was, you know, out in the boat trolling, there happened to actually be a ridge a couple of miles down from, from where our camp was. And I saw this, you know, this ridge, it was beautiful terrain that sloped right down the lake and where then the shore took a bend and it went out, it didn't, wasn't really a cove, but it made a 90 degree turn and came out to a point. And I saw that and the ridge stops right there where it comes down to the lake and it goes away fr- from the lake, um, right there. So it becomes a spot where deer bending around the lake and coming on and off the ridge, there's a point there. And so I said, this just looks like a good spot. So I was up there fishing with my girlfriend, had the dog with me and, I happened to get out and go, go for a walk one day, just to stretch the legs. And, uh, she said, my girlfriend said she was going to stay in the boat and the, the dog, you know, was going to stay there and relax for a little bit. And so I take off, start walking around and I start seeing some, some good buck sign. I'm seeing, you know, some scrapes left over from last year's season. I see some rubs on some trees and I said, okay, this is like, you know, a good area. And I hear my girlfriend start calling for the dog and his name's Henry. So of course, Henry, you know, was taken off from the boat. So I know he's trying to find me. And so he's following my scent trail up, and I see him, and he starts wandering off down kind of off the ridge. And I venture over into that area where, where he was, and it's a little more open, and I start seeing what looks like a dried-up or dried up brook and a little run that goes across it. So I decided to, to, go, and, to go and put a camera over there um, when I came back uh, over Labor Day weekend. I put a camera out, and uh, so this was beginning of September. So I put out a bunch of different cameras in, in different areas and had hopes that this, this would be a good spot. I figured on that run, I may get some pictures of a decent buck. So I ended up not getting back up there until I hunted right before Thanksgiving, but my father, he had come down to hunt with me in New Hampshire. So I told him uh, about, you know, where this, where this camera was and said, Hey dad, I got some different cameras in different spots. You should go ahead and check them out. So he checked that particular camera. Uh, he takes the whole month of November off and just goes up to the cabin, you know, no electricity, no running water. Um, just just deer camp. He spends a whole month up there. He checks that camera a couple weeks into it, and sure enough, he had had a picture of, of a nice ten pointer. It looked like it was about two hundred pounds. It had come through by that camera three times in October. Hmm. Then, um, then he had gone and put out a couple a, a couple other cameras in that area. So a couple days go by, he came back to go and check to check my camera. He checks that one and sees that that same buck he had gotten pictures of previous had come by three days in a row now. It had come by on a Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning between seven and eight o'clock in the morning. So d- during daylight hours. So of course, at that point in time he says, okay, hey, this is a spot to go and set up. Like you know I'm, I'm gonna you know put out a stand here. And I kind of, you know, told him, you know, I said, you know, back where the cuts come off down off the side ridge where it makes the bend around, that's right. seen, you know, some big, you know, some big buck shit, you know, this summer, I'd seen that over there. I said, you know, that looks like, that a good spot to probably, you know, maybe six and look back down towards the lake in this area. So he, he sat there, you know, that, that Friday morning and it ended up, you know, snowing rain mix. It might as well have been rain. He said, and then he gets down and checks the camera. Um, over over at the other spot at the bottom of this plateau where the little cut came to an end and he happened to check it and the buck that I Ended up shooting was on that camera um, So of course you see this buck, you know, beautiful beautiful rack on it You know tall tine was a little blurry in the picture You can see it had some type of kicker or maybe multiple kickers coming off some some of the tines But it looked like that one was definitely over 200 pounds uh, so at that point uh, my dad, he started you know hunting in that area a little bit more, because he was seeing activity, and there happens to be uh, a few oaks and some beach o- along that along that side ridge, or the side ridge there in that area. Uh, so I had gone knowing he was hunting there, didn't want to step on his toes and get get too closely. So when I got when I arrived up at camp, I scouted some different areas where I hunted last year. Um, you know, saw saw some deer over in those spots, but it seemed like uh, a lot of the the sign was over where he was hunting. So I started hunting um, that that same ridge up on top and further down and put out some cameras, but all the activity seemed to be kind of centralized around that food source, that late season, you know, traveling through, right. you know, whether it's does or, or buck setting, it jumped a, a couple of deer over in that area. Uh, so that's where, uh, so this is, so I, I arrived up at camp, uh, what was it, uh, Wednesday night, checked some cameras, so I hunted now, the last three days of rifle, I hunted Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. On Sunday, we kind of put our game plan together. He was going to keep hunting down on that side. I was going to go and hunt, hunt up on top of the ridge, only probably about three-tenths of a mile away from where he was.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so at, at that point in time, I'm, I'm now it's Monday morning, so we've got our plans. We're all excited. We go in. Um, we both had climbing tree stands. Uh, so we take you know our, our climbing stands in. Normally when I'm archery hunting, I'll hunt like out of, you know, a lot of lone wolf stuff. Um, but when it comes to gun hunting, you have that comfort a lot of times the, of the summit stands. It's almost sitting a lazy boy up, up in a tree. Right.
4: Uh,
3: plus, plus you have that, that bar to be able to shoot off. And so now on Monday morning, it's, it's loader season. So I'm sitting up on top and I'm I'm up on the ridge, um, you know, waiting for something to come through and it's to, it's start, the wind's starting to pick up and I've been sitting for a couple of hours now and, and okay, I haven't seen anything yet. And all of a sudden, I get that jump in my seat. Boom. I, I hear a shot go off. Well, my father, my father just touched one off. So of course mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of service up there. So I send out a text and I'm like, all right, I know it's him. It's, it's close. You know, I'm wondering you know, what it is that he get the big one. So I, you know, going and you know, waiting for a text back, waiting for the text back. And, you know, 15, 20 minutes goes by and he says, yep, I, I got one. You know, is it down? He said, yep, it, it's down. So I'm all excited. You know, my dad got one, but I still don't, you know, know, what it is. And he's like, Oh, I, I think it's, you know, an, an eight pointer or, or, or a seven pointer, you know, some somewhere around in there. And so I said, well, should I come down and look? And he's like, no, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a huge one. And he had said the day before there was stuff that he wanted to get done around the camp. So you mm-hmm. can tell last week of the season, he wanted to do some stuff. He wasn't going to be you know too picky that last week. And right. he normally holds out. Um, so that's where at that time I said, well, Hey dad, you know, it seems like the activity's going down there. Should, should I come on down where you're at or, or, or stay up here? So he had said, "Well, hey, if you, you want to go and come on down, you know, you can come down. You know, I'll I'll leave my stand, you know, down here." And um, so I I said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to get down because you know all the information I had from looking at terrain features and putting my cameras out and you know spending a lot of summer scouting, and I said that was the spot I originally you know wanted to be." Um, so I said, "Okay, let's, let's let's move down there." So I moved down, uh, made my way down the, the ridge to the lake, came out to the lake, and it's just cool. I pop out to the lake and look down. And there's my dad. You can know, see his orange out, you know, clear as day, Mm -hmm. looking down the lake. And so I come on down, meet up with him, see see his buck, you know, nice, nice seven point buck. Um, and you know, so of course we, you give congratulations and he said, well, Hey, uh, I'm going to go back to the, go back to the cabin. He goes, and uh, I'm going to grab a canoe. So instead of dragging it out of the woods, it's easier. I can just come along the edge of the lake and and grab it with a canoe. I'm like, all right, cool. He's like, Mm -hmm. well, I'll show you where the stand is. So we go ahead and, he takes me up in and shows me, you know, where, where the stand was and, you know, it's a nice, you know, hard, hardwood area. And so I'm, I'm like, all right, so yeah, this definitely, you know, look, looks like a good spot some place I wanted to set up. And there was a scrape that was probably, I don't know, 20 yards away from, from where the stand was. You could almost see like an old trail that kind of came down through, through the woods in that area, um, which, which looked like, you know, a good kind of travel area for the deer to come through. And he said the buck that he had shot that morning, was coming down looked like it was going to drop down to, to that little kind of old road that was grown up in, in the hardwoods. Uh, so, so I end up, you know, this is now around 10 o'clock. I end up, you know, go, going up in the stand and you know, he, he takes off to go, to go, you know, get his, his buck, um, and you know, go back to the camp and grab the canoe. So he, he takes off. Um, I'm sitting there and the wind's just whipping, it's, it's coming along the ridge and the way the stand's facing is the wind, the wind's at my back. So I sit there, you know, all day, you know, 10, 11, 12 o'clock, one o'clock goes by and I I hear him come back and uh, you can hear that fiberglass noise um, right. of the paddle, you know, in the canoe, mm-hmm. that this distinct sound. I can, I can hear that uh, across the lake and I hear him unloading the canoe and, you know, he paddles across and um, he ends up, you know, loading the buck up and, you know, then he goes back across and I'm, you know, of course texting with him and you know, just kind of giving him a crash Hey dad, you, you quiet down, you're making all kinds of noise over here and, <laughs> So he says, you know, Hey, I'm out, you know, I'm going to go to the tagging station and check in the buck. So I'm sitting there and of course it's now, you know, the winds seem like it's going to calm down. So I kind of, you know, rest my eyes for a little bit after, you know, sitting all day. And and I said, okay, you know, right before prime time, just, you know, kind of got to get your game face back on, you know, because it's been windy. I've been staring, you know, just looking, just can't hear anything, just, you know, looking all day long, glassing, waiting to see some movement. Haven't seen any, any movement yet, yet at all. Haven't, haven't seen one deer, you know, all day. Um, so then finally around, it's, it's got to be getting close to, you know, quarter of three now, you know, 240, you know, 245. The wind all of a sudden calms down. I'm like, all right, th- this is, you know, getting into prime time right now. The wind's dying down. They, you know, if anything's going to get up on his feet, this is probably should be what, when it'll happen.
2: Right.
3: Well, I can go and look down probably about 80 yards and it's, it's a, to kind of, I guess, describe the woods. It's hardwoods, but it's a mix of beach, some oaks, and there's a lot of yellow and white birch that's mixed in. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of branches everywhere. So it, it's one of those, you can see through it, but to actually, you know, pull up, you know, the muzzle loader and be able to, you know, get a shot off, there's not many, you know, windows or opportunities. Right. So I'm just, you know, scanning around through all this, you know, looking pretty, pretty high up in the tree. It's a pretty steep elevation that comes down off. And so I'm sitting there and okay, yep. All right. Wind's died down. I look off to my left and All of a sudden, I look up, whoa, there's a deer up there. It's about, you know, 120, 25 yards off, and, whoa, it looks like it could be a good one. So, it's off to my left, like, real hard, you know, almost back behind me, off to my left. So, I grab the gun, and I pull around and, you know, pull up the scope to to get a better look at it. And as soon as I start to pull up the scope, I can see its head turn. I'm like, oh, it it has a big rack on it. it. It's... I mean, you can you can just see you know tines that that go up above its head. And at 125 yards, when you see you know a rack that big that stands out like that, you you know it's you know it's pro- probably a shooter, especially up there because of you know the size of the bodies. And you see a rack that big, it's not like you have to wonder is it a two and a half year old deer. Right. I mean, it's just you're, they don't have you know the nutrition necessarily to produce large racks. You know, un- unless they have a little bit of age to them and usually some body size to match. So when I when I saw that I'm like okay now now I'm getting excited and of course you know you get to get the heart racing a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily you know I've had some experience with, with getting you know some some real real nice bucks. So it's uh, this isn't you know a new situation you know for me, but you know it, it always get, gets that adrenaline pumping. For so sure. it's, you know the, the heart's racing. Um, I, I see see the buck. He's angling like he's going to go down towards the lake and start walking kind of further away and almost go out of sight. So I'm debating, do I grab the grunt call? Do I grab, you know, like a, you know, a tan call, like, you know, should I, should I do something? Should I turn him or should I just wait? And I'm like, but if he takes a couple of steps, he's going to be, he's going to be out of sight. And I got the muzzle loader, and I'm like, there's just no real windows over there necessarily to, you know, get a good, you know, true ethical shot. And I'm like, I could probably get one through over there, but uh, what is he going to do? So. I just decide I'm just going to wait. See, see what happens. If he goes out of sight, maybe I can call, call him back. And the wind's blowing towards me, so I don't I don't have to worry about you know getting winded. At that point, he turns and starts coming, kind of down in my direction. There's a big rock, probably about 60 yards off to my left. And so there's I mean, you're talking a huge boulder. I mean, like the size of like you know probably five six pickup trucks. Wow. And he's he's angling right towards this this big boulder. He's coming he's coming now down towards it. I'm thinking, wow, like he's all right. He's gonna go behind that rock. He's either gonna come around it to the left, and I, I'm not off, I'm gonna have a shot there, or he's gonna come around the right. And he's gonna be coming right on a string, right, right down towards me. At this point, he's getting bigger. As he's as he's coming along. Right. I'm not staring at the rack. I'm sizing up the body too. You know, being like, all right, I know it's a buck that that I want to shoot. it's the last week, but in the back of my mind, that goal comes up of 200 pounds like you know i still have the rest of the week though it's like this is what you come up here for and i want one anything to make sure it's over over 200 pounds and oh it's like the late season so it's, it's got to be a big deer and i'm looking at it, he comes down through and you can just you know see that you know that that deep chest you know as, as he comes down that lumbering the swaying of the legs as he's walking towards that rock and he's he's, he's got to they got to see him broadside so he goes down he goes behind that that big boulder all right he's going to come out left or right all of a sudden, you see the tips of, tips of the tines start coming out to the right side of the rock. He's creeping his way a- along that rock. He comes out to the right side, and instead of walking st- like still parallel, you know, along the ridge about about you know probably actually 70, 80 yards off, he instead turns and starts wrapping around the rock to come right down towards me. <laughs> And I'm at this point, okay, so w- w- waiting for a window and seeing what he's gonna do. But I'm like, all right, he's gonna keep coming. He's probably gonna walk almost right under the stand. Just wait, just wait. You don't, you don't have to rush. So all of a sudden, he stops dead in his tracks, head to the ground, rack right in the leaves, and he's smelling something in, in the ground. I'm thinking, whoa, what, what is he smelling? He doesn't seem alarmed. He doesn't seem alert, but his head heads right down. I'm thinking, well where did my dad shoot shoot his deer? Is he smelling that? Did my dad walk over there? Is he smelling my dad? Like what's going on? And a lot of times human smells up there, it doesn't always spook deer. I mean, sometimes, I mean, they'll jump, you know, a mile away. It's like just because of the thermal and they'll blow and and run off. But other times they can smell you, but because they're not as used to people, they don't really associate it always with danger. So it's, it's it's a little different up there. So I don't know what he's going to do. I've taken the safety off and put it back on, you know, probably three or four times now. I'm like, oh he's he's there at seventy yards, his head's completely straight down, and I'm like, I have a window. There's one branch, and I've turned the scope up to, to I have a three by nine uh by forty millimeter uh, Leopold VX two on my on my muzzle loader and I have, it, it's, it's a night it's a night muzzle loader and I'm looking through the scope and I just see this one branch, kinda like a pendulum, back and forth, just swaying slowly through through the scope picture. I'm like, oh, I'm like, should I take this shot? I'm like, you know, with a 50 caliber muzzleloader, if I hit him right between the shoulder blades at the base of the neck, he's not going anywhere. Right. I'm like, it's, it's it definitely, it's definitely going to go and put him down. I'm like, he's going to come closer. And so I, you know, kept debating, debating, debating. And it's that, you know, what seems like an, an eternity. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, it's like, he's, he's, he's got to be close. It's like, if you got to be right about there at, at 200 pounds. So at that point, I just, I just, you know, that split second decision in your head, It just, okay, shoot. Like he's there, that branch is coming. He could bolt at any second. So then I just, you know, squeeze that trigger and he just goes down, rack down the dirt. He almost, his hind legs start to just work one last time. His rear end flips kind of up in the air and he, instead of doing like a complete cartwheel over, he just started to kind of slide sideways down, down the hill. And I'm looking and I'm like, he's down. Like he's, he's done. I mean, little tail flick, little, you know, leg quiver, but quick, just the way you want it. I mean, nice. perfect. He, he's down and I'm there, you know, it's like, here you are miles away from the next person. And it's like, you just want to, you know, you know, just give that big old, you know, like, you know, just almost primal kind of yell like, Hey, I did it, you know, fist pump. Right. And of course the first thing I can, I, I, I can just think is wow, I got to get down and see, see how big he is. And I'm like, but Oh, I'm like I, I, gotta, I gotta text my dad, so I text him BBD. <laughs>
4: well, Sorry. of
3: course, m- my dad—I don't even know if he has service. And of course, we all know what, what BBD means, right? Right. right. Yeah, so so I'm, so I'm sitting there, and my dad, I'm waiting. Finally, okay, boom—he he texts back, huh? Question mark.
4: Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> what? <laughs> and I'm like, big buck down! Exclamation point. And, uh, I, and so of course his reply is there's an expletive. Yeah.
4: Right. Um,
3: he's, you know, pretty excited. He goes, he goes, I'll, I'll be there in 30 minutes. And I said, w- is the canoe still still on the back of the truck? And of course, like, easily, yeah, I don't, I don't hear back about, about the canoe. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming, you know, he, he, has, he has the canoe still cause on his way back from the tagging station. So at this point, I, I, you know, text a couple other buddies, I, I, you know, climb down and I I walk over to him. The first thing I see is the way he's laid, he's stretched right out. And like, he has the length, he has the size, his neck is just swelled up, huge, you know, pick up the rack, you know, count the points, 11, uh, uh, basically a five by five Mm -hmm. with, with a kicker coming off. I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was G three, I think it was, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was the G two, maybe it was the G two. Um,
4: and I mean, I don't
3: know if you could probably just to. I mean, what would you guess the, the inches are, Clinton, from seeing seeing the pictures? I don't even know how to really do inches, oh, but just to kind of put in perspective.
2: I can't recall 100. I mean, he's. I would pretty. I mean, he's he's definitely Pope and young. You know, in, in my book, I mean, he's over 125 inches. Probably 130s, maybe pushing 140 would be my would be my guess. And that's just me going. Yeah, I mean, he like has, going off of memory. I mean, he he had some mass. He had great time length. He had great main beam. Um, he was just a great looking deer. Yeah,
3: so he, yeah, he he wasn't like super wide, but yeah, I mean that's what I was kind of thinking around around one hundred and forty, you know, somewhere somewhere in that range. So you know, nice nice rack, just thick heavy, and you know, so I'm looking at that and I'm picking it up, you know, you know, looking at it, and so then I said, okay, let's give him the true test. And I don't know if this is even a thought that crosses your your guys' head, but grab all that rack, let's see how he moves let's see how heavy this this body really feels and just give him a little tug mm-hmm. and so i kind of pull him like oh he has that rutted out feel you know like he right. he's big bodied long huge front end but he just doesn't seem to have that immovable object type, type feel right you know and i'm like oh it, it, it's 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 gonna be close but he's, he's got to be this has finally got to be the one like that that goes over that goes over 200 pounds
2: right so your dad so, I, so did your dad make make his way back with the, with the with the with the truck
3: so so at this point, I walk down the lake, you know, I, I carry my gear out and I come out to the, there's a road that like a little camper that goes out to the point. And so I, I, I come up to that road and make my way up to it. And sure enough, I just see my dad pull up the truck, put it in park. And I see him look down on the steering wheel to text, you know, text me and say, I'm here. And as soon as he sends the text, you know, my phone goes off, I get it. I, I, and then he looks up and sees me staying in the road and the arms go up in the air. You know, and, you know, just give that fist pump. He gets out of the truck and he's, you know, I mean, he's just ecstatic. You know, come up, we celebrate, high five, hug, you know, it's just that that moment, father and son, that you just, you know, that just makes the hunting all, all worth it. Yeah. And at, at that point in time, you know, it's okay. It's time to go get him. We, we bring the canoe down to the lake, you know, hop, hop in the canoe, and, you know, here we are putting the life jackets on to this point. The lake is, you know, freezing cold. Right. Um, so it's, it's, he, you don't want to risk falling. So we put the life jackets on. We 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 paddle across the lake. Uh, at this point, it's just before now, just before dark, So We go across the lake and um, you know go go get the buck and look at it. And of course, my dad, you know, he he was thinking, you know, he probably goes, you know, you know, we were both thinking, you know, maybe two ten, you know, two twenty, the absolute most, but probably you know around around two ten ish.
4: Right. Um, I was a little
3: worried just because he didn't have that that big feel to him um, as far as the, the heaviness. I loaded in the canoe. My dad walked back to shore. paddled across. So that was just, you know, just an amazing experience, you know, same day, same stand, almost the same spot. And, you know, both got to use the canoe. The canoe's already, you know, covered in blood on the inside from, from my dad's buck, you know, before we even loaded mine in there. Um, so just, you know, amazing experience, amazing memory. And so then we get him back to the truck. Um, may, may have had a little celebration at, at, at the truck real quick. There you go. Um, you know. Yep. Um, so, you know, maybe had to had to do a quick, quick little cheers over there because, yep. you know, it's a, it was another successful season. And uh, so, so then basically we go ahead and, you know, and drive out to the tagging station. Uh, so there's there's two tagging stations in the area. One had certified scales. So I said, hey, th- th- that's where I want to go. Um, so at this point, you know, we've gone, you know, and d- dressed the deer. Um, so go to the tagging station, get there. Um, they, they come out and they put it on the scale it's a digital scale. So as it's hoisting up off the tailgate, I'm looking at that scale, just wait and see is it going to go over the mark and you see it you know going up through the 180s you know the legs are coming up off you know behind quarters you see it go to the 190s and it's approaching 200 it goes to 200 and then finally you know it goes 201 202 203 and settled on 204 nice um so at at that point you know it finally i, I knew i finally done it and could, could breathe that, that sigh of relief
2: that's awesome man and the, uh, the cool part is is that your dad took a deer earlier and then you took one out of the same stand your dad was able to be there with you you know that's just a cool story man and you get your patch man you know what I mean? So like all, all is good with, with a little cheers, right? You even get to use the canoe, man. Like how cool is that? Like I've never got to use a canoe with the uh, hauling out a deer. I, it's something I think I need to do.
3: It, you, you definitely do. Cause yeah, well, last year I got another buck in New Hampshire with, with a, with a muzzle loader and I had to go, I had to go get that one out of a swamp with a canoe. And there's, 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 it's just a great feeling loading the buck in and just paddling across, looking at him laying in the canoe in front of you. It's just, it's, it's a great sense of accomplishment. So I, you should definitely put that one on the list.
2: Yeah, for sure. Man, well, congratulations to you and your dad for a killer hunt this year. Um, I do want to be sensitive to your time because I know we've 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 kept you here for just a little over an hour. But before I let you go, man, um, is there anywhere that you want to direct people to to kind of follow you on you know Facebook or Instagram page or anything like that, where people can kind of tag along with you during your hunting seasons and scouting and stuff like that?
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, if if anyone you know wants to just you know look me up on on Facebook, you know, you know Neil Pendleton. Um, you know, you can go ahead and find me on Facebook, you know, follow me there. I've started to, you know, try to go ahead and, you know, do, do more actual, you know, write-ups about, you know, when I have a successful hunt, you know, kind of retelling the story. Cause I think, you know, for all of us as hunters, that's, we love telling deer stories. So to get a chance to, you know, sit down and, you know, spend the time to actually, you know, write it up so people can you know relive that story with you and feel like they were there. I think, you know, it's just an awesome part of it. And as much time as we really put into the actual hunt itself, to take times to really enjoy the memory and, you know, make it last to, you know, to sit down, write it up, to relive it and, and type it all up is something that, that I've you know really started to enjoy.
2: Awesome, man. Well, Hey dude, I appreciate you coming on. Everyone go out and give uh, Neil a follow. Good follow. Always thoughtful posts from you just about hunting and, and, and things in general. I appreciate your time. And uh, if we, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk beforehand, but uh, have a good holiday and uh, have a great new year, man. My man.
3: Yeah. Thanks, and uh, and you too. And uh, just same to you too, John. It was it was great talking to you both tonight. And uh, thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: For sure, man. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. All right,
2: folks, that is a wrap for today's show. We'd like to thank Neil for joining us. And before we shut this thing down, a quick reminder, be sure to sign up for the Exodus Lift 2 Trail camera giveaway on our About page via our newsletter. Um, we'll, as I mentioned in the up front of this, we'll do a drawing once we hit the 200 mark and get that out to the lucky winner to get into the timber. Um, also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you aren't already and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. We'd be very much appreciative of your comments and reviews in that regard. And last but not least, we want to thank all of you for listening and finally need to give a big shout-out to our partners that continue to help make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Whitetail Institute of North America, and Glacier Coolers. And until next time, Happy New Year, and we'll see y'all.
4: Coming, if at all,
3: it takes a special knowing the colorful image text, broken letters,
4: rationalize yourself in numbers. But I gotta get right, from right here. Gotta get right, from right here. Oh, 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 oh.